Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, A Remembrance Meal. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, to chapter 13, verse 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Two things about the Christian faith always strike me as remarkable. You know, it's remarkable how backward-looking it is. And what I mean is that the history of God's dealings in the human race are carefully written down, carefully preserved, carefully taught to the next generation, and carefully celebrated in such a way that we do not forget. Our faith is deeply rooted in history. Take away a careful remembrance of what has been done. There's no faith left anymore. But our faith, while it is backward-looking, is also a faith that is remarkably forward-looking. And here, you might think of what I have in mind is our hope in the second coming of Christ, and of, of the new heavens and the new earth. And most certainly, in this way, our faith is forward-looking. That is, looking at God's faithfulness to his promises in the past gives us assurance that God, who has faithfully and consistently kept all of his promises, will continue to do so in the future. But when we think of this forward-looking aspect of our faith, a part of it is in recognition that in the future, we must take care that generations yet unborn have access to the past. For if they do not, the faith can't live in their hearts. And you might wonder, as we study through the book of Exodus, why the action seems to come to a halt. I mean, why so much time and direction given concerning the Passover? Why not allow for, you know, some flexibility in the celebration? I mean, why all these details? And that's a question that moderns ask. You know, we're used to constant innovation and change. I think it was Henry Ford that said that that history is bunk. Now, I can't say that I know exactly what he meant. But if my memory serves me correctly, I think Ford thought that innovation and change was of greater value than history. But here we've got to make a distinction between technological innovation, which we've all benefited from, and God's mighty acts in the past. See, if we forget the actions of God in history, we lose all sense of God. See, the great tragedy among contemporary Christians is that for them, their faith rests in their contemporary subjective experiences at the expense of the historic faith, once for all delivered to the saints. They talk about God's guidance and experiences that they've had with God and the emotion that God engenders in them. And please don't hear me criticizing that. But please also know that these things by themselves will lead to heresy and to an absence of truth and ultimately to the ruin of our faith. If we don't remember, we have no ground upon which to stand. And all of that to say, We're not yet done discussing the death of the firstborn in Egypt and the celebration of Passover. So let's start at Exodus 12, 40 to 42. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. It's important for us to keep our date straight. I've already in the past made the case why the Exodus itself should be dated at 1446 BC. 
Going backward by 430 years means that Israel entered Egypt in 1876 B.C., 430 years is a long time. Stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the stories of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, Joseph's rescue of Israel from famine, they are now historical stories. And the thing that Henry Ford purportedly said was bunk. You know, those 430 years, although Israel had remembered their history, they had also adopted a great many of the ways of Egypt. And in the end, it became apparent that many of them had adopted some of the Egyptian gods and goddesses and had integrated them into their own religion. But on that very day, by the way, that very day doesn't mean 430 years to the day. Rather, it means on the very day after the death of the firstborn. That is, not a day passed, and Israel left Egypt. Now, we might think at this juncture that our text would move towards the next adventure of leaving Egypt. What happens next? But instead of doing that, the text now takes us back to some of the remaining details regarding the Passover celebration. And why? Well, the reason has everything to do with an earlier mention of what we saw in verse 38. There we were told that a mixed multitude joined themselves to Israel. They believed in Israel's God. They wanted to journey with Israel to the promised land. See, even though this group of people would have all lost a firstborn, they still wanted Israel's God. You know, in a way, they reflect the attitude of Job. Job 13, 15 records Job as saying, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. But because this group had not celebrated the first Passover, what was to be done with them? How would one treat foreigners who love the God of Israel? Should provision be made for them? Should Israel open their arms wide to them, or should they be excluded? So let's read Exodus 12, 43 to 49. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or a hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. You know, at first it looks like the Passover is limited to ethnic Israel. And that would be the normal understanding of no foreigner may eat of it. We might think of the Egyptians, the Cushites, the Moabites, Ammonites, all the nations that would later surround Israel. But then if we go forward to verse 48, we hear of the sojourner, that is the traveler, the person who's journeying through Israel and comes from a distant country, and we find out that person wants to participate in the Passover. So what are they to do? Are the priests who would have been responsible for this to say merely to them, no? That's an important question because as we go through the First Testament, we find a number of people who are foreigners who want to be included in Israel. They'll include the prostitute Rahab, who lived in Jericho. They include Ruth, who comes from Moab, who told her mother-in-law, your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And of course, at the very outset of the Exodus, it did include a large mixed group of people. And the answer to their quest, which ultimately is their quest to eat the Passover, is that they must come under the same rules as the ethnic Hebrew. 
Circumcision is the mark of the covenant. And so the foreigner, if he is a male, must submit to circumcision. In short, he must place himself under the law of God. You can't partake in the Passover as a neat religious experience. It requires full conversion. And I need to hasten here to the experience of New Testament believers today. You know, for us, the Lord's Supper has replaced the Passover meal. And furthermore, circumcision, which was applied only to males, is now replaced by baptism, which is applied upon confession of faith, regardless of whether you're born into a believing home or not. See, for us, baptism is a sign of entrance into the Christian faith, and communion is the celebration of the ongoing nature of the Christian faith. And because of this, and following this pattern, I, as a pastor or as a spiritual leader, would not want unbaptized persons to participate in communion. I mean, communion and the privilege of participation requires full conversion with the corresponding sign of baptism. You know, in the history of the Christian faith, that's been the most widespread practice. So let's get back to our text. You know, some of us are surprised that foreign slaves are mentioned. I mean, how does this nation who are basically a nation who are delivered from slavery, now have their own slaves. Well, in most cases, that would have been people who served as slaves until a debt was paid or as a punishment for a crime. But the Hebrews were not permitted to make slaves out of fellow Hebrews. That was to be remembered. So let's go to the end of chapter 12, verses 50 and 51. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. That is, the people of God were united as the community of faith. They submitted to Passover regulations. There would be an ongoing practice of it in the future. They would not forget. They would open the Passover only to the people of the covenant. Even though a foreigner was not ethnically Hebraic, the foreigner would, in celebration of the Passover, identify with this story as the story of deliverance from slavery, and they would celebrate with Israel. And with that, again, the words are repeated on this very day, that is, on the very day after the night of the death of the firstborn, Israel leaves Egypt. The passage says, they went out by their host. That's a military term. They went out as a mighty army. The army was on their way to worship at Mount Sinai, then to the Promised Land. It's that time of year again for the release of our annual Back to the Bible Canada 2023 Scripture Calendar. This year's theme is Freedom in Christ. Each month, you'll find stunning visuals, a Bible verse reflecting on freedom, and encouragement from Dr. John Newfeld to live freely. It also contains a guide to help you read through the Bible in its entirety in one year. It's our hope that this resource will serve as a tool to help you engage with God's Word daily, as well as to encourage you to live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. The Freedom in Christ calendar is available free for the month of October. But hurry, supplies are limited, so to request your copy today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It's interesting to come to Exodus chapter 13. Again, we would have expected that our text would take us to the action. What did leaving Egypt actually look like? What adventures would they go through on that first day? Were there any hiccups? 
was there a great opposition from the Egyptian military. But instead of dealing with that, we're still not done with instructions regarding Passover. It's as if God is saying, not so fast. You can't just move into the future until you've settled the celebration. It's important never to forget. And so we find there are, in fact, two more religious practices that are necessary. So let's look at the first one, Exodus 13, 1 to 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. It's important to remember that the Passover would always fall in the springtime. And among domesticated animals, especially among the lambs and the goats, this was the time when birth would take place. And so to consecrate the firstborn or to dedicate the firstborn to the Lord, spring is the ideal time for this to occur. But in the memory of the wondrous truth of God's grace, that the firstborn of Israel were saved from death and judgment from now on, at the time of Passover, there would be a ceremony of the dedication of all firstborn to the Lord. Again, a celebration of God's grace, what he had done for the people in the past in their history, never forget. And there's another celebration attached to the Passover meal, but also distinct from it. And this one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, chapter 13, verses 3 to 10. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Aviv you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So did you notice the important phrase right at the beginning of this paragraph? And it's the phrase, by a strong hand. That same phrase gets repeated again in verse 9. For with a strong hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt. And that phrase will get repeated one more time in the same chapter. Look down to verse 16. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the phrase, the strong hand of God, is used several other times in the First Testament. And in most places, it's in relation to the Exodus. For instance, Psalm 139. The second line is the line, for his steadfast love endures forever. But as a part of this psalm, we read that we should remember the steadfast love of the Lord who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out. And then it adds, he did it with a strong hand, with his outstretched arm. Or in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10, we read that God's people were redeemed by his strong hand. Now, in Nehemiah, it may have been that he's referring to the end of the Babylonian captivity, but it's also just as likely that he's referring to the Egyptian slavery. See, the idea of the strong hand is the truth that, were it not 
for the might of God, Israel would never have escaped Egypt. The entire story of their nation, the reason they would inhabit the promised land, all of that is only explained by that one phrase, the strong arm of God. We need to do the same to understand the story of our own salvation. See, any story of our salvation, that's not the story of God's strong arm. That's not a story at all. But why is so much made of a feast in which no leaven is permitted? And the answer is that the deliverance from Egypt happened suddenly. See, eating bread without yeast was eating the bread of haste. Children were expected to ask their parents why all the yeast had been removed, and the parents were supposed to explain the salvation of God. Deliverance came suddenly, the parents would say. We had no time for the bread to rise. Eating bread without yeast in the month of Aviv was a constant reminder of how it happened. And so in order to emphasize that, notice how our passage states it. When you come to the promised land, it's flowing with milk and honey. There's an abundance of everything. Taking away the leaven during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that seems shocking. But the lack of something in a land of abundance is intended to shock the senses from what actually occurred to take Israel from such want and such suffering to a land of such abundance. Is that not the strong hand of the Lord? And that's what it means to remember. See, the remembering is built into the traditions that are now at the time of Moses being established. You know, sometimes in our world, you know, the word tradition, that's used as a negative word. You know, it can be negative, but it is so often positive. It establishes a pattern deeply imprinted into a culture established each year. Look again at verse 8. You should tell it to your son. You know, it is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Notice it said in the first person, the Lord did this not just for our nation. He did it for me, son and daughter. I personally experience mercy and salvation. So do you. But because Moses understands this as a pattern to be repeated throughout the generations in the future, he anticipates that future fathers will also use the first person to their sons. They'll identify with this story so personally, it's going to feel to them as if the Lord personally reached down to them and delivered them. And in essence, that is exactly what happened. For every father knows that they've been born into slavery, but God had mercy. Look again at verse 9. It's a sign on your hand. It's a memorial between your eyes. That is, the memorial would be so pronounced, it would be like marks on your body. The, the hand for action, the eyes for seeing. And so, for all those reasons, it was a command of God. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, these three celebrations all happened at the same time, and they were commanded. Look at verse 10. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. That is, the date set on your calendar was never to change. At the same time every year, the Exodus story would again be thoroughly recounted. For at least one week every year, everyone in Israel, the young, the old, the ones who had heard it countless times before, would again submit to hearing the story again. For a whole week, they would hear it. Of course, as I've said, it builds the importance but there's more. It says the law of the Lord might be in your mouth. And that sounds like a renewal of covenant. So let's find other places where we find words like that. Later in Exodus chapter 23, verse 13, God says, pay attention to all I've said to you. In Deuteronomy 5, 15, you shall remember 
that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7 verse 18, you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Deuteronomy 15 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. That gets repeated again in Deuteronomy 16 verse 12. Remember, remember, remember. Go over the events again, rehearse them, do the ceremony, talk to your sons and daughter, even if they roll their eyes, tell you that they've heard it before. Next year, do the ceremony with them again. Remember again, that's a mark of the people of God. And it's not just like the act of remembering is done in the First Testament. It's done for followers of Jesus today in the Lord's table. This do, said Jesus, in remembrance of me. Or think of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Remember Jesus. Remember his death and resurrection. Remember that he is the expected Messiah that has come directly from the covenant God made with David. Remember the promises of the Messiah and remember the gospel. That is, Christ's crucifixion is a substitution. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Remember. See, the worst thing that can happen to a Christian is that they're biblically illiterate, that they don't know the mighty acts of God in history. They don't understand what those actions mean. For if that happens, they become severed from God. I began by saying that a part of the Christian faith is that it's a backward-looking faith. Whatever we remember in our baptism, when we celebrate the Lord's table, when we recount Christ's birth at Christmas, when we retell the suffering at Good Friday, the resurrection at Easter, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, remember. Thanks today, John. And let me ask you this. You know, our church works so hard at being relevant to the culture around us, but is there a risk in that? Yeah, I'm not arguing against, you know, relevancy. I mean, obviously, we want to be relevant. We want to speak to the culture. Uh, But I know this. If we speak to the culture on terms that the culture wants us to do so, you know, they'll, they'll laud us and say, oh, you're so relevant to us. But if we do that, we have become irrelevant. The only word that we have to our culture is a word that comes from the great God. And that, it will be relevant, but it will take the culture off its game. So don't speak to the culture on its terms, because that's not relevant. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023, and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Neufeld 
and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary, or registration forms, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.